to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. Today, we have a special episode as we honor Very Well Mind's 25 award winners. A panel of judges and editors at Very Well Mind chose thought leaders, experts, and advocates who are making a difference in mental health in some way. If you're interested in seeing who the 25 winners are, go to verywellmind.com slash verywellmind25, and you can read about all the people that we're honoring this month. One of those people happens to be Nedra Glover-Tawab. Nedra's a therapist and one of our favorite guests of all time. Last time she came on the show, she was talking about her New York Times bestselling book, Set Boundaries, Find Peace. Today, she's back to talk about her newest bestselling book. It's called Drama Free. Some of the things she talks about today are how to set limits with your family, how to deal with difficult people, and how to stick to the boundaries that you've set. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist take. It's the part of the show where I'll break down Nedra's strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Nedra Glover-Tawab on how to be drama-free. Nedra Glover-Tawab, welcome back to the Very Well Mind podcast. Thank you for having me again. Yeah, well, there's so many guests out there that it's not very often that we have the same person back twice. But as soon as I saw you had another book hitting the shelves, one of the first things I did was send out an email to see if we could get you back on. So I'm just grateful that you wrote this book and grateful to talk to you again. The last time you came on the show, we talked about your first book, which was Set Boundaries, Find Peace. Since then, you came out with a workbook, which is also amazing. And now your new book is called Drama Free. And I feel like it is the best time in the world to launch a book about drama and relationships because so many people seem to be struggling with that issue, especially in today's world. Yeah, I don't I don't think it's a new issue, but I think the way in which we deal with family relationships is really different. Many people have stepped away from the belief that blood is thicker than water and family is everything. And it's more like, do we have a good relationship or not? Um, so this book is to help people um, have some ways to deal with those difficult family relationships. Sometimes we think the only way is to leave the relationship, but there are so many options in between leaving and, um, you know, staying and figuring things out. So the book will certainly give you lots of things to explore in unhealthy relationships. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I feel like as we're learning more about relationships, family dysfunction, seeing more things that get shared by people that are like, well, just cut people out of your life, which is one extreme. But then on the other extreme, it's no, your family's there forever. You should stick with them. And in this book, you really explain that we have options. And sometimes we do need to take things to to the end where we say, okay, I'm not going to have this person in my life anymore. But sometimes we don't need to take it quite that far and we can establish a healthy relationship where we can manage our own boundaries in a way that the person doesn't affect us quite as much. In fact, there is a quote in your book. My favorite line in your whole book was it, when you say, instead of building more tolerance for others, perhaps it's time you, ch- perhaps it's time to change the things you no longer want to tolerate. 
And I thought, oh, that's a powerful line right there. Yeah, that is a powerful line. I really like it too. Oh, I wrote it. Um, yeah, I, I think we put a lot of emphasis on what other people need to do. They need to stop gaslighting me. They need to stop doing, you know, gossiping. They need to stop. And those are all terrible things. However, just by telling someone, hey, you're gaslighting me and I don't like it, it doesn't mean that the person is ready to change. But perhaps when they gaslight you, you could say, I believe myself. Like, I understand you need to believe something different in this situation, but it's not the truth. And you can stand on that. And that could, you know, often we don't feel free until they agree with us. And it's like, I don't know if the person with the dis- difficult behavior is going to say you're right. Um, often they will keep going with their behavior and they're really trying to get you to think like them and you're trying to get them to think like you. And it's just this cycle that doesn't really help you or the other person. You have to stand in your power and say, I know what they're doing. I know what this is. This is time to walk away or this is time to maybe talk to them less or this is a time to have a hard conversation. And your book starts out talking about dysfunctional family patterns. Those are really hard to recognize because we grew up with them and we think that they're normal. Sometimes it takes until you're 40 years old or until you have kids that you start to realize, well, maybe some of the things I grew up with isn't normal or it's not healthy. Yet, most people tend to be fiercely loyal to their parents, to their siblings, to the things that they grew up with. Why is it so hard sometimes to even admit to ourselves that what we grew up with wasn't okay? Because it means we have to change something. Um, whether it's our role in the dysfunction or our relationship with the person, you know, recognizing that, oh my gosh, my dad's drinking wasn't just heavy, it was alcoholism. Um, And how that impacts you as an adult, you know, you may want to change some of those things and say, hey, you know, I know that this is something that you are powerless over, but here's the way you can show up in my life. You know, that can be really hard because I was I was speaking with someone whose parent was an alcoholic and they were saying, you know, I knew it was strange that I felt really embarrassed to have people over my house or to talk about it. And I knew that the thing that caused my parents to act weird was alcohol, but I didn't know what alcoholism was until I got out of the house. And I was like, oh, that's what it was. My parents were alcoholics. I just thought they drank a lot and they act wild and got into fights and you know, those sort of things. But I don't want to deal with that as an adult. I don't want to be at an event where people are like fighting when they're drunk. And you have the power to control that and say, I'm going to skip this gathering because people will be themselves. Like that might be re-triggering and it might be too much for you. But then I think sometimes we have this notion of if I don't go to that family gathering, then the family is going to be mad at me, right? Or they're going to say, you're too good for us or you uh, maybe aren't and invested in the family anymore now that you've grown up and moved away. How do people deal with the the guilt or the behaviors that they get from other people that maybe try to suck them back in? Yeah, you have to recognize recognize when you've been taught to deal with the dysfunction. You know, it is sometimes we're unaware of how we're talked into dealing with unhealthy things, with people yelling at us, with people being neglectful toward us and often people mistreating us. You know, I've heard a thousand times, well, that's, that's your sister. That's your, that's your dad. That's your mom. It's your aunt. 
And it's like, but they did this terrible thing that we wouldn't allow from other people in the world. You know, because sometimes it is, you know, there are family members that steal people identities. There are family members who ignore, I'm reading a book right now, The Latecomer. The siblings is, is triplets. They ignore each other in social settings. Like we're not even siblings. We don't like each other. Like that's unhealthy, right? Right. Like there are so, there's bullying in families. There are so many things that we we believe is normal because it's our experience. And it's to the advantage of the other people to make you believe you have to accept it because then they get to continue doing it. Yeah. And sometimes we accept somebody's, like it's their character flaw, right? Like, well, that's just how your father is, or that's just how your sister is. And everybody else comes to accept it. And if you don't accept it, or you say, I'm not willing to tolerate that in my life, then they think they start to blame you, right? As the one who's the weird one, or that the one who's intolerant of those certain behaviors. Yeah. You know, I, um, I have a family member who's very pushy about your time. So time boundaries is a tough one for them. So if you do not answer your phone, if you do not call them back right away, I mean, they get really upset. You know, they'll start sending text messages. I just called you. Why didn't you answer? Where are you at? And it's like, what's happening? Oh, nothing. I just want to talk to you. (laughs) It's like, I'm at work. I'm at a social event. Like, so it's, you know, it's one of those things that I have to learn how not to respond in that way. I no longer say, hey, I can't talk right now because I've said that, right? Like I've gone through the motions of, hey, I'm not available right now. Now I have to not answer my phone and I call you back when I can actually speak to you. That is the way that I manage the person who is saying, whenever I want to talk to you, be available. It doesn't matter what you have going on. I haven't ended the relationship, but I do say, To myself, this is not a time where I can talk. When I have space, I will call this person back. And sometimes we have those light bulb moments, like it may take something kind of strange or an outside person before you really realize, oh, this is weird, right? That my family does these certain things or that we all tiptoe around someone or that we all jump when somebody calls. And then you really realize like, oh, I guess I don't have to do this anymore. Yeah, I've I've been in the, I don't, I'm from the Midwest, so I say movies. I've been in the movies before. And I'll hear someone's phone go off. You know how they play that thing of turn your ringer off and all this stuff? There's always one person who just leaves it alone. Right. I've heard people answer the phone just to say, hey, I'm in the movies. Let me call you back. And I often think like, why didn't you just not answer the phone? (laughs) Right. Did you have to give an explanation as to why you're not available in this moment, but we do feel like, oh my gosh, if someone is calling me, I have to respond to it. Or if someone wants this thing, or if they get upset at me, or if they, you know, whatever those things are, like we have to do this thing to make them feel better. When in actuality, it makes us feel worse. It makes us really anxious. It makes us uncomfortable. It makes us feel like our needs can't be met in a relationship. And one of the things I liked is there's a section in your book where you talk about the difference between ignoring somebody and distancing yourself. Can you explain that? Because I think we do feel bad if we don't reply to uh, an invitation to something right away or we don't pick up the phone, but you say it's okay to distance yourself. Yeah, distancing yourself is, you know, you don't always have to let the person know, hey, you're difficult. I'm taking space from you. Please don't say that. Um, But you may want to, you know, if they invite you something, hey, I won't be able to be there. 
It's not ignoring them. It's just saying, I'm not coming. Um, ignoring them will be giving no response. And I think often people get more upset when we're not responding at all. But the more you say, I'm not coming, I'm not coming, most people will start to understand, oh, they don't want to be here. Let me stop inviting them. Now, if the person doesn't catch on and you need some space, you may need to say to them, hey, I need some space. Um, that's why I haven't been coming to these you know, events you're inviting me to. But most of the time, people will just stop asking. And it's not that you've ignored them. It's no, you've recognized your invite and you said, no, thank you. Yeah. And that you talk about too, like if you're busy, don't answer the phone in that moment. It's okay to call somebody back later when you're able to, or if you're just emotionally overwhelmed by the day and you know, if you answer the phone, somebody's going to overwhelm you even more. It's okay to not pick up right then. You can return the call when you feel like you're emotionally available to have that conversation. Emotionally available. That's a very important thing. There are some people who take a lot of energy from us. And some of those people are our parents. It can be, uh, you know, maybe a friend, a sibling, a cousin, anyone in our family. Um, and because we've been trained to respond in many cases, we don't even notice when we, we are emotionally unavailable. I've seen people in my presence respond to calls that they don't want to have. Ugh. And then they pick up and they're like, hello. You know, so that that quick pretending, but I've caught the, uh, right. Oh, what do they want? And then they answer the phone. And it's like, want anybody to answer the phone if on the backside they are saying to someone else, what do they want? It's like, don't answer for me. I like that. And putting that into perspective, like would I want somebody to do that to me? And then if that's how you feel, then it's okay to not pick up the phone too. Yeah, it's okay to not pick up because what happens is, that energy is seeping out in the conversation. We're trying to move it along. We're trying to get to the end. We're being short with our responses. We seem like we're irritated by the person. It's okay to say, this is not a good time for me to talk. My six-year-old is in a no thank you phase. And it is the <laughs> cutest thing ever because you're asking her stuff that she absolutely needs to do. And she's like, no, go brush your teeth. No, thank you. <laughs> But, you know, mostly she's applying it properly. But then there's other times where it's like, can you wash your face? No, thank you. <laughs> and it's like, OK, this is no thank you gone wrong. You have to brush your teeth, says the dentist, not just your mom. Um, you need to wipe your face or I'm going to wipe it. And you're going to say, oh, mom, you're hurting my eye. You know, so <laughs> right. These are things that must occur, but there are a lot of things where it's like, no, thank you. And I'm like, oh, you know, that makes a lot of sense to say, hey, do you want to come and cuddle with me? No, thank you. And then she'll come and cuddle when she wants to. What freedom to be able to choose how we want to show up in our relationships. And so often we feel compelled, like we have to give a lengthy excuse of why we're not going to do something rather than just giving a simple, hey, no, thank you. Yeah. And I think no, no, thank you is, is gentle. Um, it's not always what we want to hear, but I think we have really gotten into the mode of managing other people's feelings. And so we try to prevent them from being upset. We try to prevent them from feeling challenged or uncomfortable with anything. So lots of times we don't say anything. 
because it's going to make the other person upset or uncomfortable or mad at us. And, you know, I, I wonder if we could retrain ourselves to think that a part of existing as a human is to annoy someone, to make them upset, to um, also upset people, to annoy people yourself, to not always be like, to um, not always like everyone. Like all of these things are very normal on the scale of being, being human. Yeah, absolutely. And what would life be like if we just accepted that's going to happen? It's inevitable. Something I wanted to talk about too that I see a lot, not just in my therapy clients, but in families that I know and even in my own family, where somebody shares information and then says, but don't tell. So sibling might tell the other sibling, you know, I'm filing for bankruptcy, but let's not tell mom or dad. Or the parents tell somebody like, hey, I'm going to give you this information. And then the person feels like, well, should I share it or don't I share it? Or how do you keep people's secrets? And that creates tons of drama within the family of who knows what information. And sometimes it gets leaked because somebody said, oh, I didn't know this person wasn't supposed to know that information or it became too much for me to, to keep it a secret for you. What about family secrets and managing that? You know, I, I I don't think of those as necessarily secrets as much as it is someone's personal business. Yeah. Um, and I think often in families, personal business is confused with community business. Mm -hmm. And I think of it as how much does this have to do with you? Did they tell you directly? Um, I spoke with one of my cousins last week and she was telling me some information. And then yesterday, I spoke with my mom and she had a piece of that information. And I said, oh, yeah, I, she had enough where I could say, oh, yeah, I heard about that. I spoke with her last week. I didn't share the other part that hadn't been shared because it's not my business to share. I'm only chiming in on what you know. And then it turned into, and so-and-so said this. And I said, hey, now this is the part where I step out. <laughs> yeah. This is the part where I step out now. I've told you. And it was it was some, you know, some healthy business. But I'm like, everybody else's interpretation, you and I are talking about something that we each individually learn. And I'm just saying, oh, I'm aware of this um, because I don't even want you to call and tell me the person's business. <laughs> right, right. And I think that's what gets a lot of people in trouble, as you say, that they assume family business is everybody's business. It's, so it's community okay. business. Right. Yeah. We should tell everybody in the family that so-and-so is going through a breakup or that they're having a financial issue. Well, is that enmeshment? Yeah, I think so, right? I think so, too. <laughs> yeah. I think so, too. And maybe we should talk a little bit about that too, because you do spend a fair amount of time in the book talking about helping someone versus enabling them. Can you explain that difference? Yeah, well, I'll tell you a really easy indicator. People who are being helped typically have some progress. Mm. People who are being enabled are in the same spot, needing the same type of help over and over and over. Um, I think often because of our love for people, because usually when I hear about enmeshment, enabling, codependency, it's often coupled with love, right? Yeah. You feel like, this is the way I love them. I rescue them. This is the way I love them. I enable them. When in actuality, we may be getting in the way of them figuring out things they need to know, developing skills they need to acquire, or... Um, 
making hard decisions and failing. You know, a lot of people learn from failure. And that's really hard to watch sometimes. You know, when you think about your little baby walking or a little kid walking and they're just tumbling, you just want to pick them up. But a part of them learning is falling. You have, I mean, I don't know. I don't know any kids who just walk and they're like, oh yeah, I got my stride down, you know, just got it and I'm going. It's a lot of falling. It's a lot of, oh my gosh, look at him. You know, <laughs> it is interesting to watch. And I think many of us are still in that mode with people of any age. It's almost like we're watching them learn how to walk, but instead it's learning how to pay their own bills, learning how to parent their own children, learning how to manage their own issues. We're like, oh my gosh, if I don't help them, they're, they're going to fail. And that might be a part of it. And that's okay, but that's also a part of how they learn. Yeah, and I feel like probably most families have that that cousin, that uncle, that sibling, where people have said before, like, well, you know, they struggle a little bit more. And maybe a lot of other family members have pitched in. And then you might be left with that decision sometime, right? When you get the call that says they can't pay the rent this month or they're having a hard time to know when do you step in and, and when do you say, I'm going to step back or I'm not going to do that not because I can't, but because maybe it's not a good idea for me to do this or this wouldn't be a kind thing for me to bail you out right now might not be the kindest thing ever. Mm. You know, I think people underestimate how hard it is for responsible people to do things or the strong one to actually do things. That's really underestimated because they may not share how difficult it is. They just kind of figure it out like in silence. They're like, oh my gosh, I'm so tired. I can't believe I'm climbing, climbing Mount Everest, but I'm going to get to you. It's like, yeah, can't believe I'm doing this, but it's so hard. So for, I, I, I wonder often if the person that we see as needing more help is the person who's more vocal about needing help. That's a good point. I think you might be right. Sometimes people are more likely to ask for help as other people aren't going to say a word. Yeah. And so I think we assume like, oh, this other person needs, they don't need any help. But it's like, no, I think they both need help. And one person is more vocal. Yeah, that's a great distinction. And then to think is, is the person actually getting better or because the family maybe bails somebody out, helps them out enough that they don't ever face natural consequences that maybe we're actually keeping them stuck or holding them back. Another thing I want to talk about that's in your book is this section about toxic forgiveness. So glad that you brought this up because I hear so many people who are really quick to forgive and forget, quote unquote, and, and say that I'm going to move forward with my life, whether they were abused, they were neglected, or somebody did something terrible to them. They want to make sure that they forgive so that they can move forward. But you make it clear that we don't always have to do that, or sometimes we get the idea about what forgiveness is wrong. Yeah. I, um, Last week, I had a conversation with a group of women, and one of the women spoke about um, growing up with a mother who was physically abusive, and to the point she was removed from the home by Child Protective Services. As an adult, she's trying to have this relationship with her mother who is currently very unhealthy and abusive in their adult relationship. And she kept saying, I just want to forgive her and get over it and move forward. And my question was, do you have a person that you can move forward with? Which I think is just really hard to acknowledge that 
there are times, no matter how much we, we may want a mommy, we may want to be nurtured, we may want to be loved and supported. Certain people can't give it to us. Mm. That is tough to come to that, that conclusion, is, isn't that it? That is, is, oh my gosh, it takes us years. Yeah. You know, it takes us years to get there. I used to do work with people in foster care. I used to provide therapy for the children and the parents. Mm-hmm. And I see it. You have these kids removed from these horrific situations and they're trying to figure, figure out how to forgive things that were atrocious, you know, in some instances where it's like, whoa. Yeah. Um, I think forgiveness has benefits. And I do think that, you know, there is redemption when people are remorseful. I think when the people in your life who cause the abuse are still abusive, it's an unhealthy situation. You know, I think there is a difference when the person has made a shift and they say, oh my gosh, what I used to do was terrible. But when they're still doing the terrible stuff, you know, it can be very hard to constantly and chronically have to forgive a person because it's it's like you're trying to heal, but you really can't because you're still in the cycle of abuse. How can you heal something that's going on? You know, it's like having a cut on your arm and hitting it every day up against something. It's just going to keep bleeding. It's not going to be able to heal. You have to step away from whatever is injuring you to be able to heal it, or you have to have some, some relief, some recovery. But often we don't have that. And we're like, oh my gosh, I, I just got to get over this so I can stay in this relationship. That's one way that we forgive in a toxic manner. I think another way that that happens is people make us feel as if we can't be upset about stuff. I can't be upset about you telling everybody in the family my business because that's just our family culture. Right. I have to deal with that. Even if I told you not to tell cousin so-and-so about my financial issues, I have to deal with that. And it's, it's, you are entitled to be upset. And it doesn't, it may not mean that you stop talking to someone, but you can be upset about it. You can still be injured. You don't have to get over it just because a week has passed or a day has passed. Some things really hurt and it takes time to heal and some things never heal. So there are, you know, there are ways that we are taught to believe, you know, the best way to be in a relationship is not to have any negative feelings, to just get past stuff, to move through it. And sometimes that is just not possible. And when we're doing that, you know, when we're toxically forgiving people, what I found is it comes up later in a very passive aggressive way, whether it's you verbalizing something or you behaving in a certain way. Well, I'm not inviting her to my wedding because she didn't invite me to her wedding 10 years ago, but you've been talking to her the whole 10 years. They didn't even know that. (laughs) Right. Here it is. You've been secretly mad about not being invited. Wow. And it gets complicated, right? Because somebody might say, all right, now that I'm an adult, I see that I don't like what I grew up with. Maybe I don't want a relationship with my dad, but I'd still like one with my mom and they're together. Or you decide, all right, I don't want a relationship with my sibling because it's not healthy, but your sibling's going to go to the family barbecue and you have to then decide, do I not go to those events or do I go? How do you navigate those complicated family situations? Yeah, you you said it, Amy. You know, you you decide if you want to go or not. 
Um, I think it is certainly as complicated, but I think it's possible to have relationships with a parent that don't include your sibling. It might be separate from other events. It might be separate from those family gatherings, or it might be you going to those gatherings and just, you know, bearing it, whatever you think you can do. Um, We can choose different things. And there is really based on your comfort level. Um, There are some people who they're okay with speaking to their sibling occasionally at some family thing. And then there are other people who are like, I'd rather not even go because I don't want to see this person. And in your book, too, you talk about uh, some of those complicated relationships and how sometimes we choose to end them. But sometimes there's like a stigma that comes with being estranged from your family, right? If your friends were to hear that you don't talk to your parents or somebody else, a coworker asks you what you're doing for the holidays and you're not going to see your family. Sometimes there's this expectation, well, you should mend that relationship or you should do whatever you can to have contact again. How do you deal with that? If you decide to cut yourself off from certain people in your family, how do you deal with the stigma of being estranged? Mm. Well, you decide how much you want to explain yourself. There are times where you, you know, maybe you want to tell the whole story to someone. And there are other times where you say, you know, this is something that I think you may not understand because your situation seems really different. And I understand that, but this is the choice that I am making for my relationship with whomever, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, No one gets to decide how we show up in our relationships. And no two relationships look the same. There are some people, um, I just saw a letter from someone. I think someone wrote me a letter where they said that they were the only person speaking to their sibling and the rest of the siblings had cut this sister off. And so, you know, it was like the three siblings had a relationship and no one talked to the one sibling except this person. They're like, okay, now I'm ready to stop too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They're they're like, oh my gosh, like my mom, you know, because often people stay in a relationship because they worry about the parents, right? Like, I don't want to upset my mom. I want, you know, my, my parents to be okay with this. I don't want my dad to be worried. But, you know, there may come a point where it becomes way too anxiety provoking or stressful to even stay in the relationship. Um, for yourself. It is just way too much. And I think that um, people don't make that decision lightly. It's not something that they're just like, you know what? I don't like them. It's like, it's been years of thinking about um, the relationship. And, you know, research says that people become estranged, not because they're angry, but because they are tired of conflict. They are tired of constant chaos. They are tired and actually become anxious about engaging with the person to the point of they rather not even do it anymore. So it's not about, oh my gosh, I don't love this person anymore. I hate them. It's like, just tired of this. Yeah. I can say as a therapist, the people that I've worked with who have eventually become estranged, Nobody ever said I did that too quickly. (laughs) A lot of people would say, you know, I waited a really long time. I put up with behavior for an extra decade longer than maybe I should have because I was wrestling with this decision and it was so tough to make. Yeah. I, I once made the mistake of leaving a family relationship and then 
I went back after three years and I was like, oh, let me try to make it work again. Nothing really changed. Um, and then I left it again and people tried to get trip me. And I said, you know, my only mistake was going back in the first place. So like, I, yeah, I think I should have stayed away. <laughs> right. But I see that happen a lot that we try to do that and hope that maybe things have changed or hoping. Right. <laughs> it was a different year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The calendar switched over. That's all that was different. And I think sometimes you see the impact of it and you're like, oh, maybe, oh, maybe. And it's like, this person is not um, anyone I would want to have a relationship with, family or otherwise. I think when we think of family, we like to glorify what that can look like. But, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer had a family. <laughs> you know, it's yep. like, would you want to talk to that cousin all the time? <laughs> you know, so I think it's, I think it's one of those things. Like, do you get a choice? I think so. Yeah, you may not want to talk to, you know, certain people based on their personality, based on how they present, based on, you know, how they treat people. I can't imagine, you know, some of the people I see on the news or people I hear about in these, you know, true crime stories. I'm like, they're not great relationships with people. So it's it's not like, oh, you need to talk to him. It's like, no, I completely understand why you don't talk to this person. And why do you think it is that we sometimes like feel responsible for our family members' behavior and the things that they do, or we feel some shame if somebody else does something that's it's a terrible thing or they are acting out, that we carry that with us, like that somehow represents who we are. We think it's a reflection of us. Um, what is the guy, the Unabomber, uh, Timothy McVeigh? Yeah. Timothy McVeigh. His brother turned him in. His brother turned him in. And I heard his brother say in an interview that, you know, during the time of him sending these, these um, letters and, you know, all the things he was doing, he released the, the uh, Timothy McVeigh released a, a, a letter in the New York Times or something. And he said, I recognize some of the language from the conversations that we had. And I called the FBI and they, you know, they went to get him. And he said, I haven't talked to him since he found out I turned him in. So it's been years, right? And he's like, I'm okay with that because I saved so many lives. Wow. So I was like, wow, wow. Because so often we feel like, oh, that's betrayal. It's like, this man is a serial killer. Like, where do, where do we draw the line on behavior if we can't even draw it there? <laughs> it's like, right. When, can, when will you be willing to throw away a relationship? Like, what does a person have to do? That's an extreme case. But we feel like there has to be like these really big things when in actuality, it could be, I don't feel respected or safe in the relationship. That can be your reason. And I don't have to dispute it. I don't have to say, well, you know, I think if it's your if it's your sister, you have to give her more chances. Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't need to give your brother any more chances. Maybe you don't need to give, you know, your dad any more chances because it's really all based on capacity. Yeah. And I think families then sometimes feel like they need to take sides, right? Or they then need to talk you into doing something differently if you choose to take that step where you decide you're going to limit your contact or have no contact with somebody, then they feel like they have to say who's right and who's wrong. 
they really don't have to, you know, it's not a debate. Right. And it's, it's hard to say what other people should deal with. You know, like, I feel like there are some things like, oh my gosh, they tapped out too soon. Or, oh my gosh, they, oh, they took too much. And it's like, it's really not my capacity. That's the thing. You never know what people went through or what they dealt with. And you might see it from the outside, but you weren't on the other end of that. Not at all. When we look at physical activity and you see someone pushing tires or flipping over tires and this sort of stuff, I'm like, not my capacity. <laughs> you know, it's like, that is that person's capacity to flip that 100 pound tire. I will never do that. And so in, in certain areas, we give people the freedom to choose their capacity. But in family relationships, we want to say, no, this is how much you should tolerate and take. And I guess the last thing I'd love to talk about is you discuss the importance of choosing friends who maybe become your family. And that's completely okay that down the road, maybe you decide that the people you surround yourself with are going to become more like siblings or surrogate parents to you. Absolutely. I've heard some beautiful stories of people really having connected relationships with godparents sometimes. Sometimes they're, you know, friends, parents, or people in their neighborhood, old professors, um, all sorts of things. Um, religious leaders, you know, their pastor or whoever it is. But you get to choose people who you couldn't pick, right? Like you can't mm -hmm. pick your parents, you can't pick your siblings, but you can certainly pick some healthy friendships. You can certainly pick um, some healthy role models. There are tons of people who are dying to love on you and to be there for you. But often when you're only looking for your family to do it, you'll miss all these other people. You know, there's no one there for me. There's no one there for you. Well, there's your teacher. She seems to be rooting you on. Oh my gosh, that guy who's always asking you, hey girl, how's your day? he's rooting you on, you know? So, so there are so many people who can be there for us and we really have to be able to make space for that. But unfortunately, when you come from unhealthy families, they will lead you to believe that you shouldn't trust the people who are nice to you. Isn't that weird? You don't trust strangers, but I should trust the person who's abusing me in this family. That's weird. <laughs> it is, but it happens so much, doesn't it? It isn't that a way to keep you from unhealthy, from healthy relationships. I've seen it so many times where families will be enmeshed, codependent, and they'll be telling the child, you know, when you leave here, you rely on your parents. You don't do all of these things. You rely on your parents. You don't trust other people and all of these things when in actuality, it's the parents they can't trust. It's not the strangers. The strangers are kind. They're nice. So it's a, it's a way to keep people in that system, to keep them dependent on the dysfunction, which is unfair and unhealthy because I want people to be happy, right? And if I want you to be happy, I have to support your happiness. And if that means you have a boundary, you have an expectation, you have a desire, then I want to support that too, because I want you to be happy. I want, I want to support your friendships. I want to support you having healthy connections outside of me. I don't want to hinder that. Why would I want to keep you to myself? 
But you're right. We see that so much where people grow up in that environment where they're told you can only trust people in your family and don't really trust other people. And if they're nice to you, there's probably a reason that they're pretending to be nice and you can't actually trust them in the end. Yeah. And it's actually the people who the actually the people you can't trust are in the family. (laughs) Right. It's the people who are spreading that message to keep you kind of dependent on them. Like it's a cycle that they want you to repeat only with them, not with this this possibility of having healthier people. Um, It reminds me of the movie Waterboy where um, Bobby Boucher's mother is like, you know, don't trust anybody. You know, your dad is, is dead. And, you know, just telling him all these false things in an effort to keep him really close to her. But when he goes out and he gets a girlfriend and she starts sharing new things with him and new experiences, he's like, what, mama lie? <laughs> it's like, yeah, Bobby Boucher, mama lied. <laughs> <laughs> but that does happen so much in real life. I was a foster parent for probably 10 years. And these were children, but of course... There's not a single one who wouldn't have gone home in the split second if they could have. They were fiercely loyal. And as a therapist, I would work with a lot of former foster children who grew up, and a lot of them had tried to reunite with their birth families for one reason or another because they were fiercely loyal, because they had been told those things of don't trust anybody else outside the family. And often it didn't work out when they tried to reunite with them because at some point it just too unhealthy. And they hopefully came to that decision where they realized, okay, what I grew up in wasn't okay. And all these years, everything I believed to be true wasn't. That's really tough. Yeah. Yeah. Coming to terms with what you've been taught was actually to keep you in a pattern of abuse is, you know, unfolding just more abuse that occurred. Right. So one last question for you. If you were to say to you, some of our listeners, if they are looking for just maybe one more tip about how to reduce the drama in in their lives, what would you say to them? You know, outside of reading this book, I think the, the biggest tip would be to recognize their role in the drama. Sometimes we are starting conversations with people we don't want to have. You know, we'll really poke, start a conversation about politics and be like, oh, I hate the way they talk about it. You don't have to have it. You don't have to initiate it. Um, Sometimes we will share information with people who are not trustworthy and we'll get upset with them for sharing that information with others. We have to consider how we're attributing to our own issues. And once we start to do that, we can really change the course of those relationships. There is some information that you cannot share with certain people. There are some conversations that you should not be initiating. There are some things that people don't need to be invited to. And you have to figure out what those boundaries are in your family relationships. Wise advice. I hope everybody goes out and picks up up a copy of Drama Free. Nedra, thank you so much for being back on the Very Well Mind podcast. You're welcome. Thank you. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is the part of the show where I'll break down Nedra's strategies and share how to apply them to your own life. Here are three of my favorite strategies that Nedra shared. Number one, recognize how your family may try to get you to take part in the dysfunction. Nedra gave some great examples of ways in which our families might pressure us to just go along with the current 
dysfunctional dynamics. Like your mom might tell you to give in to your sister over and over again because your sister has a hard time in life. Or your brother might try to talk you into going to a family event that you opted out of by trying to prey on your guilt. He might say things like, mom and dad aren't getting any younger. This might be the last time we all get together as a family. You may have experienced these things for your entire life, so it can be hard to recognize how it's happening to you. So it's important to step back every once in a while and look at what's happening. You might notice that your family has some pretty crafty ways of getting you to play along with their dysfunction. And of course, they might not be doing it on purpose. They may have just bought into the belief that families should protect each other at all costs, no matter what, and that you should lie for each other and sacrifice everything for one another, even if doing so does more harm than good. Number two, set time boundaries. Nedra literally wrote the book on boundaries, so she's the expert on how to set them, and family is no exception. Sometimes we need that reminder that it's okay to set time boundaries with family, though. You don't have to answer the phone when a family member calls if you're busy. Or if you just don't have the energy to talk, don't pick up. You don't have to reply to text messages right away either. You can insist on certain things like, I'm going to take my car to the family gathering so that you can leave when you want. And you don't have to go to something just because everyone else is. If you feel like someone in your family wastes a lot of your time or expects too much from you, it's a sign you probably need to establish some time boundaries with them. And number three, separate personal business from community business. I'm glad Nedra talks about family business and privacy and how we don't have to make personal business community business. As a therapist, I see this as one of the biggest sources of family stress, the spread of information among families. I often hear things when someone says something like, mom's having some health issues and she told me not to tell the rest of the family, but I thought they should all know. So I told everyone, but I said, don't tell mom that I told you. Then things get really confusing with trying to figure out who knows what and who has to keep secrets from who. Just because you know your cousin is getting divorced or that your brother just got fired doesn't mean you have to tell anyone else. Keep people's private business private, even from the rest of the family. And if someone has news that they want to share, let them be the ones to do that. So those are three of Nedra's strategies that I highly recommend. Recognize how your family might try to get you to take part in their dysfunction, set time boundaries, and separate personal business from community business. To learn more of Nedra's amazing tips, check out her book, Drama Free. It's available right now everywhere that books are sold. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.